The following is a North Carolina Baptist resource. For more, visit ncbaptist.org. I'm very delighted to have Mark Harris here to come and share his heart uh, about community impact through revival and spiritual awakening and uh, what the the Lord has been teaching him about the the famine that's in the land, y'all. We are in desperate need of God to move in our country, especially in the life of the church first. It's got to start with the people of God. And we know that we are uh, at that point as the church in America that we're apart from a movement of the Lord that uh, we call revival and spiritual awakening, that we are toast. Uh, we are watching this culture perish right before our eyes. And God is stirring, though, His people to seek Him. You know, I love the Scripture text in Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen, uh, And God says, You will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. Uh, you know, there's a difference between seeking God and seeking God to find God. And what we have, what has to happen is that we have to seek Him to find Him as we search for Him with all of our hearts. Have you ever thought about what it means to find the Lord in revival and spiritual awakening? And God has done that at least four times in the life of this nation and poured out His great mercy upon His church and upon this culture and sent revival and spiritual awakening. God has done that. And he can do it again. Has God changed? No, he hadn't. And so it's, it's neat to see the Lord raising up pastors to come together in different points all over the state. It's amazing. And he's been doing that. And, uh, it, and, it, and it seems to be intensified. Pastors to seek the Lord together with all their hearts. Uh, in fact, I was with a missionary recently uh, who has come back from the mission field from the IMB, and he served in East Africa, and he saw a great movement uh, of God uh, among the Maasai people in Kenya. And as we were talking, uh, he said, you know, Chris, he says, God brought us back here. He said, I'm pastoring in a little rural community. And he says, but we have pastors in our area getting together. And every week we meet with the Lord seeking Him with all of our hearts because the famine around us is great. And he says, I tasted, I tasted a movement of God in East Africa. And he says, I'll never be content until I taste it again. And so that's what this is about. It's about prayer, revival, and spiritual awakening. We're going to spend time together. I told Mark, I said, uh, you know, Mark, uh, uh, I'm going to kind of introduce things, introduce you, and then I'm going to turn you loose to shell the corn. And so, uh, and he will shell the corn and share God's word with us. And we look forward to that time together. Then as we conclude, we're going to spend some time just praying together uh, in triplets for revival and spiritual awakening. But I thank you for coming. And through the office of prayer, we're here to serve you. And this year's prayer emphasis for 30 days is God's great work. And I have some of those devotionals. If you didn't get one of those, please get one. I have some right here in a box and we'll give you one. Uh, And you can get those online. You can get them by uh, on on, uh, you can download a free copy or you can get hard copies, too. So to unite your people together to seek the Lord for revival and spiritual awakening. So let's have a prayer. And uh, then Brother Mark is going to come and share with us, okay? Lord Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for who you are, for your grace and your mercy, for your greatness, for your goodness. God, we thank you for your word. God, did you tell us that if we will truly seek you to find you, uh, we will find you as we search for you with all of our hearts. May we be a people, O Lord, who search for you with all of our hearts. And Father, we just ask of you right now 
that we would also be a people who would delight in you, oh Lord, like never before in our lives. Thank you, Father, that, uh, that you are a God of mercy and a God of grace, and that you are long-suffering, and that you have a great track record, Lord, of being long-suffering towards your people, oh Lord, of turning away from your wrath, oh God. And so, Lord, may we be a people who long after you and your holy presence, oh God. So, Lord, may you do it in the days to come. May you raise up pastors and leaders, and may you raise up your churches to come together and to seek your face, oh Lord, in this time. Because you tell us, if your people who are called by your name will humble themselves and pray and seek your face, and Lord, turn from their wicked ways, you will hear from heaven. You will forgive their sin and you will heal their land. So God, may you do that in the days to come. Bless my brother Mark as he shares. Use him for your glory and your honor. Oh God, we pray and stir our hearts towards seeking you for revival and awakening. We pray in all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Brother Chris. Good afternoon. It's great to see all of you here this afternoon, and uh, thank you for taking the time. And out of the many options you had uh, for a breakout session, you chose to to be a part of this one. And uh, so we're very grateful uh, that you've done so. And uh, let me just say a, a word, first of all, as I began, before I began, a thank you to so many of you who have prayed for us and encouraged us and walked with us uh, through what, uh, just without question, uh, has been the most challenging year of our lives. And uh, God in His grace and His mercy is uh, continuing to guide our footsteps and restoring uh, my health. And uh, as of September, the end of September, uh, the doctors have uh, turned me loose now. Uh, so following what was really just uh, an almost uh, time to, to be called home uh, back in January of 2019. And uh, the Lord brought us through when I'd become sepsis. Uh, during that time, an infection, diverticulitis, had actually leaked out and had gone all, got in my bloodstream. Uh, all of my organs were failing. Um, I, my wife took me to the hospital on Friday, January the 18th, and I've said so many times she saved my life that day because uh, I was a little stubborn, didn't want to go to the hospital. I'd already been to the doctor, and uh, but she recognized things were getting worse instead of better. And I remember going into the hospital emergency room. I'd been there a thousand times visiting folks as pastor uh, at Novant uh, or Presbyterian Hospital in, in Matthews. And I sat down in the uh, chair, the wheelchair, uh, there at triage at 9 a.m. in the morning. And uh, that is the last thing I remember for the next three days. And I lost three days out of my life uh, that I do not recall at all. Um, in fact, they called my family in uh, from various places. And uh, they found, uh, finally found by Sunday night the source of the infection and began to get on antibiotic and set up a secondary infection on my liver. And uh, they had to do a procedure to get into that. Uh, actually, on Monday, we spent about eight days in intensive care unit. Uh, there at Presbyterian Hospital, um, three days in the step down, and then came home and were on antibiotics for a month. And as Chris alluded to, we certainly had things going on in the uh, political realm after we had been elected in November of uh, 2018 to the Ninth District U.S. House seat and had won that race, uh, though the State Board of Elections uh, stepped in and uh, felt that somebody that was involved in our campaign uh, had actually done some things uh, with absentee ballots that was not legal. And uh, so they called it into question, uh, although there weren't enough ballots uh, in question, it seemed, uh, but the State Board of Elections being set up the way it was, appointed by the governor, uh, the numbers were certainly clear uh, of the decisions that they were going to come down with. But in the midst of all of that, we went through that, and I still had IVs going in my arm, uh, throughout that whole experience in mid-February. And I had surgery in March to remove 8 to 12 inches of my colon. They found a hole in my heart in January in the midst of all of that where the infection had actually gotten on the wrong side of my heart through that hole and actually gone up the carotid arteries and showered my brain uh, with two strokes or what they called septic emboli. 
that was equivalent to two strokes. And so when I tell you that I'm just glad to be here today, I mean I'm just glad to be here today. And uh, God is good, and He has seen us through all of this and uh, is continuing to restore us physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and in every other way. And uh, we're very, very thankful. And when Chris invited me to come and, and share in this time, it was indeed uh, a joy of mine to be able to to come and do this today. And so we had a great time at 11 o'clock this morning, and you're our second uh, time of the day in being able to share uh, this a little bit. But in the midst of spiritual awakening and the midst of revival and really calling uh, people to revival, there's probably no greater book in all of the Bible that talks about leadership than the book of Nehemiah. Whether it be secular or sacred, uh, none rivals Nehemiah when it comes to to real leadership. And that's what we're desperately needing today, is real leadership when it comes to spiritual awakening. Leadership in, in awakening our churches to recognize where we are. Many of you know the story of Nehemiah. He was serving as cupbearer to the king. And as cupbearer to the king, he was visited by some folks from his homeland of Jerusalem. And they shared with him just how bad things had become in Jerusalem. You see, it was 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar and his troops marched in to Jerusalem. And if you will recall, they flattened the entire city. They were determined to destroy everything in it. And they took down the walls that surrounded the city and flattened the city in the process. And with the walls down, thieves and foreign invaders made it a common practice to come in and out at will and to rape and to pillage the land. And it was in the midst of that that when they shared with Nehemiah, it literally just just shook him at his very core. In fact, many Bible scholars look at it and say that Nehemiah was thrown into a clinical depression. You say, well, why would they say that? Because the Bible actually says that it changed his countenance. His whole appearance even changed after he heard this news. It so disturbed him. So in that disturbed state, when he goes to serve the king, the king asks him, what in the world's wrong, Nehemiah? You don't have the the joy that you once had. I don't see the kick in your step or the smile on your face. What has taken place? And Nehemiah describes to him exactly what had been reported to him back in his homeland. And the king loved Nehemiah. He said, what can I do? How can I help? And by the time you get to the second chapter of Nehemiah, you find that Nehemiah has returned to Jerusalem on a leave of absence. And he is now prayer walking around the city of Jerusalem in that second chapter. And I imagine most of you, if you chose this as your breakout session, probably have done some prayer walking in your time. And you know if you do prayer walking, what makes prayer walking so unique and so powerful is you're asking God to give you His vision in His eyes to see things that you and I would not normally see with our limited human vision. And as Nehemiah surveyed that city as he walked around Jerusalem, again, he was shaken to his core. In fact, you know what Nehemiah found? He found that it was far worse than he had even imagined. It was far worse than the report that he had gotten from his friends that had come to visit him. And the Bible says that Nehemiah, listen to this, it says in chapter 2, he wept. That word for wept is not that he just shed a tear or that Nehemiah just became emotional. But that word for wept in the original Hebrew describes that from the very bowels of his being, Nehemiah cried out, screamed out to God for the pain that he was seeing and experiencing there in Jerusalem. You know, folks, it it makes me really wonder. I've had an opportunity to pastor in the local church for 30-some years. I've had the opportunity to serve in the denominational level as president of the state convention and and various capacities like that. And I've I've had the opportunity to be in the realm of of the government and the public policy side of it. And I'll tell you what is amazing to me is that it's easy for us to get agitated. It's easy for us to get angry. It's even easy for us to get irritated. But the one thing that bothers me the most is when I look at the church where I've served and ask this question 
at the looks I get. The question, when is the last time that you or I have been so broken over the state of affairs in our church, our community, our nation, that we just really wept? We get frustrated and irritated, and we're ready to charge hell with a water pistol. But that's not what Nehemiah did. He was literally broken to the point that he wept. He cried out. When is the last time that we wept over the condition of marriages falling apart in our churches? When is the last time that we wept over the condition that our children are facing in school and other places each and every day that they're living? When is the last time we wept over the things we see happening in the government and that are playing out on television day in and day out? When is the last time that we said enough is enough and we were broken? Because here's the key. When Nehemiah wept in that way, it was a clear indication that Nehemiah was broken and Nehemiah cried out because he had come to the end of himself. That's an important point. Because it's when we come to the end of ourselves that we no longer, we realize we no longer have the plan. We no longer have the solution. We no longer have the answer. But yet we come to the end of ourselves. We come to the end of our rope. Ladies and gentlemen, that's when God does his greatest work, isn't it? Isn't that when God tends to move in your life and mine in the most powerful fashion? When we have nowhere else to turn? When we, when we have recognized that? Well, see, when Nehemiah wept, you began to see God giving Nehemiah a vision. And Nehemiah delivered that vision from verse 17 and verse 18 of Nehemiah chapter 2. And here's exactly what it says. Nehemiah says, Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste. In fact, one some translation says it lies in ruins. Its gates are burned with fire. The walls are torn down. Come and let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that they may no longer be, we may no longer be a reproach or an embarrassment is a good word for that. He said, then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me and of the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to this good work. You see, ladies and gentlemen, when Nehemiah delivered that day is exactly what you and I have got to recognize here this afternoon if we're going to lead and be a part of leading the spiritual awakening we say we yearn for in this country. It's really very simple. The first words out of Nehemiah's mouth, you'll notice in the message that he delivered, was that they needed to recognize the emergency. Isn't that the first thing that he said in verse 17? He said, then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins, lies waste, its gates are burned with fire. You see, ladies and gentlemen, that's the first step of all steps. And that's what we're missing today, quite frankly, of even getting past the first step of recognizing the emergency that we're in. That's where we've got to awaken the church. You say, well, what do you mean recognize the emergency? Well, you know what to do if an emergency's coming up, right? I mean, a few moments ago when everybody was coming in here, if suddenly someone would have walked through that door and they got to right here and they just stopped and they turned ashen gray and suddenly they just clasped their chest and their knees sort of buckled and they fell and collapsed across that chair. How many of you would have seen that and recognized an emergency? Raise your hand. You said we have an emergency on our hand. And, and you know what you would have done, right? You say, well, of course, Mark. Well, here's what I'd have done. Somebody would have pulled out a cell phone and dialed 911. Somebody would have immediately grabbed that brother or sister before they fell and hurt themselves even worse. If they had quit breathing, you would have stretched them out there on the floor and asked for somebody in this room, no doubt somebody would know CPR. And you would come and you would help them if they had stopped breathing. Why do we know to do all of those things? You say, it's easy, Mark. Because when we see an emergency, we are moved to immediate action. 
That's exactly right. But the problem comes when you're desensitized to what's going on around you. The problem comes when you've just come from lunch and you're kind of starting to doze off and you didn't even notice that person coming in the door or much less the tragedy that began to ensue because we're just all fat and happy and we just get settled into where we are. The word is desensitized And that's exactly what we have seen happen in our culture today. It's what had happened in Nehemiah's day. Keep in mind, Nebuchadnezzar had come through in 596 B.C. It was 142 years from the time that Nebuchadnezzar marched on Jerusalem till Nehemiah shows up on the scene, 142 years. If you believe that a generation is 40 years, think about this for a minute, a generation is 40 years Three and a half plus two generations had passed with those walls being torn down and thieves and foreign invaders raping and pillaging the land at will. 142 years. What do you think happened during that 142 years? I can tell you what happened in the first generation. First 40 years, there was a lot of finger pointing and there was a lot of blame going around. I can't believe you let that happen. Well, I can't believe you let that happen. This is what caused that to happen. You should have never let that happen. There were a lot of town halls that went on in Jerusalem and everybody was was complaining and everybody was bellyaching. Everybody was whining, but nobody seemed to take the leadership in rebuilding the walls. But the first 40 years, everybody had to be noticing that we're losing everything that we love. The second generation, the second 40 years, those people were now a little more reflective. They had kind of got through the anger and they were living in the stage that said, let's figure out what was the tipping point. When did we lose it? Did we lose it when we sat silently in the church and ushered prayer out of schools? Did we lose it When we sat silently in the church and allowed the taking of unborn children? Did we lose it when we saw the Ten Commandments be ushered out of our schools and out of courthouses? Did we lose it during that season? And and if that's the case, what can be done about it? See, that's what the second generation does. They get a lot more reflective and philosophical. What was the tipping point? But the third generation, and hear me now, please. The third generation, they never knew anything different. They never even knew that it was different than what they had seen. And ladies and gentlemen, I fear that that's where we find ourselves today. And that's why this recognition of the emergency and awakening our church to recognize the emergency is such a powerful moment in time that we have to do it because today people, the generation that's coming up just feels like it's always been this way. There was a new phrase that we were introduced to about 2009, 10 years ago now it's been. We were introduced to it by the government and it was introduced to us also not only by government but by the media who became part of spoon feeding this statement to us over and over again. And it's a phrase you never really heard prior to 2009 and let me tell you what it is. You've heard it so much now that you just feel sure it's been around forever. It's called a phrase, the new normal. Have you heard that? The new normal. Prior to 2009, you never heard that phrase, the new normal. Because it was told to us in an economic context, if you'll recall. They told us after the crash of 2008 and 2009 that was the worst since the Great Depression. They said, never again will we be able to see our our GDP grow again. They said GDP of 1% is the most we can ever hope for, they said. We'll never be able to grow this economy beyond that. That's the top of the line, they said. That's the new normal. 
And it's the same argument when people look at you and me and say, why in the world do you get worked up about this thing called abortion? It's been going on since 1973. We've already taken 60 million lives of unborn children in what should be the safest place in the world, their mother's womb, and we've destroyed their lives. And so... Why you get upset over that? We've been killing babies since 1973. Don't worry about it. Get over yourself. There's nothing you can do. That's the new normal. That's the way it's always been. That third generation says. And then when it came to family, and it came to marriage, North Carolina joined 33 other states that basically said that marriage whether it by statute or whether it be by constitutional amendment, would be defined as between a man and a woman. But no, they came along and five judges in robes or five lawyers in robes on the Supreme Court in a decision called the Obertfeld decision said, marriage can be anything you want it to be. It does no longer have to be limited to a man and a woman. It can be a man with a man, a woman with a woman. Uh, anybody with anybody? I mean, they've set us on such a slippery slope that it should cause all of us to take pause and think, what, what have we now said it can become? But that's the new normal. That's the new normal. A generation is coming up now just thinking that's the way it is. And it didn't take long to quickly realize that marriage really wasn't what it was all about till suddenly we're now having discussions just like that on whether women can go into men's bathrooms and men can go into women's bathrooms based on however they feel. Because gender identity, anybody can be any gender they want to be. You're no longer limited to how God made you or created you. And folks, can I just tell you, if you can't look at those few illustrations I just went through and see the emergency that we are in today, there's not a thing I can tell you or a thing I can show you or explain to you that can help you. It is so real and it is so obvious to recognize the emergency that we face. But Nehemiah said, not only recognizing the emergency, but the second thing he said is that we've got to rely upon God and his power. That's why you're here today, because you've recognized the emergency, I trust. And because you've recognized the emergency, you've also understood that Nehemiah said, we've got to look to God and his hand and his power. It's that same Nehemiah that said in verse 18 of that same passage, he said, Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me. You know, he talked about the hand of God. Now think about that for a minute. Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. That was a great job, was it not? A little risky in case somebody tried to poison the king. I could get a little shaky at times. But outside of that shakiness, it was a great job. You got to eat at the king's table. You got to live in the king's palace. You got to hang out with the king and build a relationship. It was awesome. But Nehemiah didn't have a clue on how to mix mortar. He didn't have a clue on how to lay a brick and didn't have a clue on how to pull a plumb line. And yet... This is the one that God would place his hand upon his life and raise him up to do something. Get this. In 52 days, what couldn't be accomplished in 142 years. Only God. Amen. Only God can do that. And that's what Nehemiah was saying to the people. Why did he tell them the hand of God was upon him? Because he was saying to them, it's not my gifts. It's not my abilities. It's not my intellect. It's not even my passion. It's the hand of God placed upon a person's life that ultimately makes the difference. And you know what? As we get ready to pray today, before we close this session, you do realize... That it is the same God, the same hand that touched Nehemiah, 
that is available to touch you and touch me right where we are and to touch our churches and to awaken these bodies of believers to impact this culture. And then the final thing Nehemiah did was not only rely upon God's power, which, by the way, we have P3 pastors all across the country that are committing together to pray, to preach, and to partner. In fact, I, there's a card there that's uh, at your seat you got when you came in with some other material. And that card, that's not just for pastors. That's for lay people and pastors. Anybody that is willing to sign that card and say, I want to be a part of this spiritual awakening. I want to be a part of praying for God to move on our nation. I want to be a part of proclaiming the thus saith the Lord God and teaching the word of God, the whole counsel of God and, and partnering with other believers uh, within my church and other churches within my association and other associations within this state and across the country to make a commitment that you want to be a part of that. So, You can fill out that card, if you will, that you want to make that kind of commitment. But the third and final thing that Nehemiah led them to do is not only recognize the emergency and rely upon God's power, but thirdly, they had to be relentless in their effort. They had to be relentless in their effort. You can almost see Nehemiah as he's speaking to the people. I mean, he was a great cupbearer. We all know that uh, because the king loved him and he served him well. He turned out to be a great builder. There's no question about that. Doing in 52 days what couldn't be done in 142 years. But if you were to ask me in modern day terms, what do you think Nehemiah would have been today? Well, I think he'd have been whatever God called him to be. But I think he could have used Nehemiah to be a great football coach. You say, why do you think a football coach? Well, one, he knows how to talk to his players. He told them that we no longer be a reproach or an embarrassment. Sound like a football coach to me saying at halftime to his team that you're embarrassing yourselves, you're embarrassing your parents, you're embarrassing the school. We need to get out there and do something. We need to awaken the troops out there. And you can almost hear Nehemiah. But I hear him more when he's just kind of passionate and down on one knee looking into the eyeballs of the citizens of Jerusalem. and, And he says... In the middle of verse 17, come on, y'all. He was from southern Jerusalem, so that's how he would have said it. He he said, come on, y'all. Let's rebuild these walls. And by the time you get to the end of verse 18, the Bible says, then the people said, let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to this good work. I'm a pastor. I love pastors. We have a responsibility to lead as spiritual leaders. But I'm going to tell you this battle for the soul of America and for revival and spiritual awakening, it's going to involve every person in the pews setting their hands to this good work. It's not the work of the pastor. He's part of it. But it's the work of the body that is standing together in these days and being relentless in our efforts. That's the reason that that we're doing something called a bold advance, which basically is a Christian response to, to where we find ourselves today. And as you go on to the next slide... I want to see some of you have never heard this phrase before, and you're going to hear it a lot over the next year, but it's the term sage cons. Who are the sage cons? And let me tell you why that's important for you to know here this afternoon. The sage con stands for spiritually active, governance engaged conservatives. How many of you ever heard that term sage cons? Raise your hand. Okay, just one back there. All right. Um, How many of you ever heard of George Barna? Raise your hand. Okay, George Barna is who identified the sage cons and set this apart. Let me tell you the characteristics of the sage cons that you might be interested to know. Number one, they're only 9% of the adult population in this country. That's a very small minority, and that actually is only 20 million adults. They are what would be described as fiscal, social, and governance conservatives. 
They genuinely believe in the Constitution. They genuinely believe in living within our means. And they believe in life. And they believe in the issue of, of family and religious freedom. They are not just people who came out of a poll and said, what's your religion? And they said, ah, put me down for Christian. These folks were actually interviewed and able to express what it means to be a blood-washed, born-again believer. So you see why the numbers are getting small, right? Now, this one tells us why it really is only 9% of the adult population. This crowd actually attends church. They actually read the Bible, and they actually believe the Bible is trustworthy. Again, you're starting to understand why they're a small segment of the population. They're also active in Christian parachurch ministries, meaning that they're the ones that are feeding the poor. They're the ones that are reaching out to the homeless. They're the ones that are caring about the children through foster care and other ways. They're also politically active and attentive. They're not dummies. They keep up with the news. They know current events, and they can have a conversation about it. And they are registered to vote and frequent voters. But here's a statement you need to take home and understand with you today about where we are as a nation. There's such a small segment of the population now. You cannot win. You cannot win an issue with this group alone. They, they, you just cannot win alone with them. However, the second part of that statement is the most troubling. You are guaranteed to lose every issue and stand without them. If this group is not engaged in the culture, if they're not engaged in public policy, if they're not engaged in governance, you are guaranteed to lose without them. And that's where as pastors and spiritual leaders within your own church, you need to know that. Because you need to know the responsibility that we bear as we move forward in this country over the next 12 months. It is critical to understand that. Go to the next slide if you will. So there's a fourfold strategy. Number one is partnering with pastors. And that's exactly what we're trying to do. Through the Family Research Council that I'm involved with, we are partnering with pastors across the country, those P3 pastors and individuals that are willing to make commitments. Secondly, we're launching community impact teams. That's what I do. That's what I do during the week. I'm doing serving as interim pastor at Stedman, but during the week I'm in states across this country meeting with pastors and meeting with spiritual leaders to launch community impact teams that are simply awakening the church to how we're going to make a difference out in that community. Thirdly, we're doing men's ministry conferences. God has placed on the heart of Tony Perkins and General Jerry Boykin, who's our president and executive vice president of the Family Research Council, they're my bosses, has laid on their hearts that there is a deep, desperate need for men to be spiritually awakened in this country if we're ever going to be able to lead this country back to where she needs to be. There has not been a spiritual movement of men since Promise Keepers that swept this country on, on any kind of level in that way. So men's conferences that, that General Boykin and Tony Perkins are speaking at are, and other speakers are going to be there are going on across the country. In fact, in North Carolina, there'll be one in the end of January, January 24th and 25th in Greensboro, North Carolina. Again, that's important when you fill out that card today that I left at your seat. If you sign that and we have your information, you're going to be notified about that conference coming up to be able to simply share it with some men in your church about uh, the conference. is going to be in Kernersville, actually, uh, at First Christian Church. And then finally is to mobilize value voters, simply to awaken people to be willing to go and be engaged and involved. So what's involved in a basically a community impact team? There's simply four things. To inform, to equip, to alert, and to mobilize. If there's a team that gets established in your church, and you are willing to be one of those spiritual leaders that will develop a community impact team, that's what you are there to do, to help inform the congregation of what's going on in order to equip them. 
One of the things that at each of your seats, I left you um, as a gift from Family Research Council, several of these documents. One of these is a parent's guide to the transgender movement in education. The people in your church, they need to know what's going on in this arena with that area. There's also one on why Christians should seek to influence government for good. There's also one in there on how to respond to the LGBT movement. All of these are well thought out documents, not written by political hacks, but actually written by thoughtful believers who love the Lord and have put this stuff in there so that Christians can be equipped and alerted and mobilized. How does that work? I'll tell you how it works. In Onslow County and Cumberland County, North Carolina. Anybody in here happen to live in Onslow or Cumberland County? Used to? Okay. Just a couple in the last two years. Planned Parenthood came in with a sex ed curriculum into Onslow and Cumberland County. And listen, they don't call it Planned Parenthood sex ed curriculum. They've got a different name. And they use that name. They find a back channel to get into the school system. And they not only offer the curriculum, but they offered a quarter of a million dollars to go along with it. So the average person sitting on a school board, a layman, gets the material from the administration and they say, wow, not only do we get sex education curriculum here, uh, but we also get a quarter of a million dollars. That might help us fill some, some holes that we've got elsewhere in our budget. And they're just, boom, they're ready to do it. Until somebody in Onslow in Cumberland County unmasked that this was Planned Parenthood's sex ed curriculum that they were trying to bring in and community impact teams and pastors in their churches began to awaken. And in Cumberland County alone, more than 400 parents showed up on an afternoon in an auditorium with an interim superintendent. And before it was all said and done, the school boards in both of those counties reversed their decisions and did away with that curriculum and said, not on our watch. So we can't say it's gone too far. We can't do anything because we can do something. And when we pray, we better be prepared to answer when God uses us as the answer to our prayers. When God lays on our hearts the gifts and the willingness to step into the arena and stand up for our children and our grandchildren and future generations... My seventh grandchild, Lord willing, is coming in January. He's going to be born. And I've got seven really good reasons that I've got to stay in the fight. Seven good reasons that I've got to stay on my knees. Seven good reasons that I'm crying out like Nehemiah. God, I see what's happening to our land. Awaken us. Awaken us. And move us. Action. And then if you become, decide that you would ever want to be a part of a community impact team training, we would actually teach you how to form a team. We talk about communication with the pastor and congregation. We talk about participation in the electoral process, which is basically just a voter registration drive. And, and voter guides that, that are handed out and then influence your community, your state, and your nation. That's what Nehemiah set out to do. Nehemiah set out to restore the city of God, to be the city of God. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. My prayer is that God will raise you up that He would raise all of us up to not be satisfied to sit on the sidelines and wag our heads and watch her go down as witnesses to the greatest catastrophe in the history of mankind. God help us to be willing to step on the field, to get on our knees, to be in the battle. In fact, 
If you fill out the card, we're going to close. I'm going to ask Chris to come right now if he will, because I want him to close us in a prayer time, a season of prayer. But I've got enough of these for everybody here to have one of these today. This is actually the resource manual that the Family Research Council provides you free of charge if you will take one um, for how to do a community impact team. This is what I actually teach the training for in places around the country. I was in Michigan two weeks ago, Houston, uh, Texas the week before that. We've got other events that are planned several times. We've been to Florida already uh, in, in key places and across North Carolina. And we'll be doing more training sessions here in North Carolina. So I need you, if you fill out that card today, please, when you, at the end, I'm going to have these on the bench right outside the door. And if you'll just lay your filled out card down on one side, just pick one of these up well, on the other side and take this with you. And I hope that this will be a blessing to you. From page 30 all the way to the end of the book, page 65, is just filled with projects, prayer projects and other projects across that you can do in your church and throughout your community to make an impact. So please fill out the card so we can give you one of these manuals. Take the other things as our gift to you, the uh, issue brochures, uh, you're welcome to them. And uh, you could actually order more of those for your church if you'd like to. Question? Yes. Does it have a component of prayer for spiritual awakening in it? Yes. Yes. In fact, every one of the conferences and everything is bathed in the prayer aspect of what we're doing. And having a prayer warrior is one of the, in the formation of a team, you have to have a team member that is the prayer, prayer warrior in leading the church. In fact, prayer meetings. I think that's going to be the most important. Oh, no question. We need to have that at the forefront. Because there need to be our churches praying for our nation once again. There need to be our churches on Wednesday night praying for elected officials and praying for our public policies that are being passed. There need to be folks. They they need to be. We need to be ready to prop that up. I'm in a church where in 2012 we started a strong prayer meeting praying for for spiritual awakening. Mm -hmm. And we started off with 45 people. We got divided up in three groups every every Tuesday morning early. We call it seven fourteen praying, mm. and and we're dwindled to four. Wow! Now we've got it. We've the four's not giving up, and it's not always the same four. Right. But we are going to have to have our churches seriously praying and recognizing what what's at stake. No question. And, I, and I'm, I'm afraid that so much of the time we don't recognize what's at stake and we're not ready to stay in there for the journey. That's right. And I, but yet we can look at all of these uh, uh, awakenings that have occurred and most every one of them have had strong prayer in, in the background. Oh, no and question. They, and they've had those times when it almost disappeared. Right. Before they before they got there. Right. And so we've got to we've got to be ready to have that kind of of stamina. No question. In order for it to take the spiritual stamina. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good point. Chris, come and lead us in our prayer time, yes, if you will, sir. brother. And what he's saying is so true, and it's so interesting when you study awakenings. Uh, God <clears throat> brings and has brought. Revival and spiritual awakening in at least three seasons in the lives of his people. The first season is when there is great dependence on the Lord in prayer. When God's people, an example of that would be the New Testament church. You see uh, this one accord prayer that was a part of their DNA. Uh, When you called a prayer meeting in the first century church, people showed up they began to depend upon the Lord. It was, it was this utter dependence upon God to do the work of God. Spiritual work required spiritual power. And they understood that God was the one that was going to accomplish that in them and through them. So he sought the Lord with all of their hearts to find him. But also, when we look at history and we look at, we look at scriptures, we see that God brings revival and spiritual awakening among his people during times of great desperation. When God's people are desperate for him, 
Now, oftentimes, when you look at the scriptures, you see that the desperation comes as a result of God's chastisement, his discipline in the lives of his people. His people have sinned against him. They have not been salt and light. They have committed grave sins of idolatry, of worldliness, and God has had to discipline them bring circumstances into their lives to make their lives uncomfortable. And and they begin to realize their desperate need for God. It's not just that they are desperate for what God can do. They are desperate for God and His manifest holy presence with Him, with His people. And so it's during those times that you see that. One of those times, if you will, is during uh, the time uh, in the book of Joel, Joel chapter 2. When God's people are facing the destruction that would come uh, at the hands of the northern army that was approaching. It was a time of great desperation in their lives. They sought the Lord. Uh, and so, but you also see times in Scripture and history when God's people, when revival comes as a result of devastation. And that's when. God devastates his people. Biblically, you see it in Ezekiel 37. The dead dry bones. God's people have been devastated. By who? By God. Because of their rebellion and their continued rebellion against him. They wouldn't turn. And God drew the line in the sand. And so it's, it's in those seasons, would be it, I, I would, would be it that, that it wouldn't take devastation to the church in America. I would, I would pray that we would become desperate for God. We would long for him. I love Psalm 147, verse 11. You know what the scripture says? It, it says that the Lord says, I delight in those who fear me, in those who long. For my mercy. We must long for God's mercy. He's a merciful God, y'all. And we must begin to long for him in his manifest holy presence and his great mercy. And so would be it that we could become dependent and we could become desperate before God has to devastate us. To bring us. People always ask me, what's the greatest need? The life of the church. I've served our denomination for 22 years now in prayer. And I'll tell you, I've traveled across North America and Canada. And I've seen the church. The greatest need that we have is for a rekindling of the vital spiritual life of Jesus Christ in his people, and in his church. We need a fresh blowing of the Spirit of God. So let's pray together that that will happen.